Well, guys, hey, good morning. I'm Jesse, and it's really good to be here. I don't know about you, but uh, we have some fun family traditions when it comes to summer, and we, we do this thing called family movie nights. Um, once a week, we find a movie, we curl into our favorite couch, we get our favorite snacks, because you cannot have a movie night without your favorite snacks. And I, I love stories, and one of my favorite kind of stories is when they say, once upon a time. You, like, you just know when they say that, it's going to be something epic. And I love stories like that. They almost always involve some kind of royalty, kings and, and queens, and, and there's these epic battles and wars. And there's something about this story that just kind of, we kind of perk on the edge of our seats, and we love it. And my favorites were always about the kings and kingdoms. I, I grew up loving and reading the book, Lord of the Rings. There's kings, there's rings, there's just these epic battles. And I, I love stories like that. I remember as a kid, this, this awe and wonder. And there's something about once upon a time that whether you're an adult or you're a kid, it invites us like wonder and imagination. And we kind of go into the story. Um, and it's something as a culture, I still think we are obsessed with stories about kings, queens, princesses, and princes. Even though we live in a Western culture, we live in this world where democracy reigns, we don't really like think about kings and queens unless we're in like England. But yet, it's something that we think about. We still tell kids stories and fables. We have stories like Robin Hood, Camelot, or C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia. There's Aslan, the king. And we love these words. And I think it's interesting this morning that we have such a a way of thinking about this, despite our culture that believes in the equality and empowerment of individual persons. I love what Tim Keller says. That he actually says that there's a memory trace in the human race. There's something that just gravitates our attention to this. That there is a memory trace in the human race of a king who served with glory, compassion, and power. That we were created to adore, submit, and serve this king. That, that even the greatest kings that we can think about in movies, whether it be fiction, whether it be real, are just a memory trace of this rightful king that's something deep in our hearts. And I love that because if we think about it for a moment, the, the record of kings and queens is pretty dismal, right? When people are elevated, when people get power, there's often a lot of abuse that happens. It's a pretty dismal record. And it seems safe to say that nobody's actually fit to rule. And yet we still crave them. We tell stories about them, even in our 21st century mindset. And this morning, we're going to be continuing our series through Psalms, and I want to connect that because we're going to be in Psalms too, and so if you have a Bible, you can go ahead and start making your way towards that. And this is a kingship psalm. It's about God's kingship and his anointed. And I want to connect this memory trace to what the author in Psalms is trying to do for us this morning. Before we dive into our passage, I want to talk just briefly, just a moment about the Psalms. They're a little different. They're not narrative. They're considered the like, hymn book of the Old Testament. They're meant to be sung. And last week, Mark opened up with Psalm chapter 1. We kind of really like, introduced the Psalms. Psalm 2 is kind of unique. It's different. Some um, traditions actually believe it's a continuation of Psalm 2. If you remember last week, we talked about blessed is the man or woman. Blessed. And this is how this chapter 2 is going to end with the same blessed. So there's a, a continuation between these two Psalms. It's one of the most quoted psalms, if you don't know, in the New Testament. It's actually quoted in three books. It's quoted in Acts, it's quoted in Hebrews, and Revelations. A lot of Jewish commentators throughout, um, before Jesus came, really believe that this psalm was referring to the advent of the Jewish Messiah. It was going to come from David's line. And why this is important is because as we think about like the Gospels, especially like Matthew, we think about the disciples 
This would have been a psalm that they would have looked to. That there was a Messiah that was going to come and he was going to restore Israel to its former glory. And they were going to overthrow the Romans. This would have been a very common psalm to be used. Now for us this morning, we can't help but look at the psalm when it talks about a Messiah. We can't help but think about Jesus as the Messiah that's come. This side of the cross. And there's two things happening in the psalm before we read it. There's two meanings that are happening. This might sound confusing, but there's a context that's pointing to Jesus as the Messiah. But this is also a psalm that had a context in the Old Testament. It was used when any king of David, son of David, was being inaugurated. When he's being commemorated, they would have sung this song as a reminder of God's promise to his people. So there's two kind of meanings there in the psalm. And so if you have a Bible, let's go ahead and read through our psalm this morning. Let's unpack it and apply it to our lives this morning. It says this. Why do the nations rage and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion. My holy hill. I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me. And I will make the nations your heritage. And the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. And dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear. And rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son lest he be angry and perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed or happy are all those who take refuge in him. There's a lot going on in this passage. It really begins with God's kingdom is under attack. The nations rage against him and they set their wills against his. There, there are so many points to make here in the Psalms. For the sake of time, I just want to emphasize a few texts from our text this morning. The first and obvious point here that we are getting out, even with these, these fairy tales, these narratives, is that we have a king. There's this memory trace in the human psyche that connects our inner desires that crave a king. Think about celebrity culture. As creatures made in the image of God, we are created from the very beginning to worship. Our obsession with celebrity culture and royalty is sometimes linked to our desire to be gods. We sometimes rank ourselves, we look to celebrities as mentors and guides. And what emerges from this landscape of stories and narratives is this primal human desire to be royalty. But we have a king. There is nothing more offensive, I think, than our Western individualistic culture that says that we are under the authority of a king. Because everything in our life is oriented around chasing your own version of happiness. I was reading a book on my 20s called The Defining Decade, because I am one of those hopeless millennials, often feeling lost in my life. And as I was reading the book, I thought it was so interesting because she basically, she's a psychologist, I think from Stanford, and she basically compared life in your 20s to like a bike shop. And she basically said, you go to a bike shop and you pick out your favorite color, you pick out uh, the kind of extras, the tires, and and, you know, the kind of features that you want on your bike. And, And this is how she counsels a lot of people in their 20s. It's called the customizable life. 
That you go out there and you find the right pieces, you put them all together, and that is how you define your own happiness. And this is really the mantra that we have in Western culture. Like, go create your own happiness, create your own meaning. It's about you, and nobody gets to tell you what to do. It's your life. I love what James K. Smith says. He says, your love or desire aimed at a vision of the good life that shapes how you see the world while also moving and motivating you is operative on a largely non-conscious level. I think that's a scary quote because what that means, if we take a moment and think about that, is most of us aren't even aware of what actually drives our affections. We might think we do. But in fact, we are passive passengers on a journey that is guided by distraction, momentary pleasures, and busyness. That we serve a king that most of us can't even define or articulate. The king of our heart that we actually worship. I think it's asking this uncomfortable question this morning as we think about a king. Is what actually drives our affections and passions. And I was thinking about this, a simple test of that is you praise what you prize. And what I mean by that is what we talk about gives it away. Your words give it away because as worship, worshiping creatures, we can't help but talk about the things we love. You love sports, guess what? You're going to talk about sports. If you love, you know, anything outdoors, you're going to talk about it. If you love to fish, you're going to talk to me all things about fishing. We are creatures of worship. We praise what we prize. You want to do an inventory in your life, ask the people closest to you in your life, what do you talk about? What comes out of our mouths? Who is the object of our worship? In his commencement address at Kenyon College, the novelist and social critic David Foster Wallace eloquently said, in the day-to-day trenches of life, there's actually no such thing as atheism. There is no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. This morning as we gather and hear God's word, we hear about the Psalms. They're meant to evoke emotions. What or who are you worshiping? What occupies your thoughts, your time? What drives your values? Where are we finding our ultimate peace as a church and satisfaction? Our savings, our investments, your budget, social media presence, your community? We have a king is what this passage is saying. Whether it be Christ, the anointed one, Messiah, or another functional king that has replaced Jesus on the throne. We have a king and his name is Jesus. You can crown him as king or choose to worship a different king. But there's no in-between because as worshiping creatures, we're always worshiping someone or something. The question becomes, who or what are you worshiping? The second reality that, that immediately can be discerned from these opening verses is that we hate the king. There is obvious rebellion against the king and his anointed that occurs in the opening three verses as you look in Psalms 2. There's language that the kings of the earth, they set themselves against the Lord and his anointed. They conspire. They plot against his authority. There is rebellion against the king. Because we do not like being under anybody's authority, right? This is the original lie of scripture. This is the original lie of the enemy, that we are our own. Or the mantra of our day, that I am the master of my fate. I'm the captain of my soul. We live in a Western culture that promotes and praises the individual person. The lie that the enemy, Satan, tricked us into the lie becoming our own gods. We want freedom. This is the outcry of Western individualism. We are opposed to the yoke that is brought about us by submitting to a king. And as a result, we see in Psalm 2, there is rebellion. There is opposition against this king. I think something about these fairy tales and and epics that we, we tell from Hollywood, there's something powerful that plays into it. I think Hollywood sells us into 
momentarily into what could, we could become. We always imagine ourselves as the hero of the story. We never imagine ourselves as the one that needs rescuing. We become the hero of the story. It gives us this imagination, the prince, the princess who discovers their true royalty, their true status, their struggles and their crisis. They've ultimately followed by their ascendancy to a throne of influence, right? Because our own journey, we find ourselves in that. Like we love that story. We love the underdog stories. We imagine ourselves in that. Gritting our teeth, you know, palming our hands together and, and fighting through it. We don't like the image of being the victim in distress in need of saving. As creatures flawed by our sinful nature, we stand in opposition to rage against God and his anointed, despite the fact that he is the all-powerful king. We cry out against war against this king because our very self stands in opposition. We crave and cling toward our autonomy. We crave to be like God. That was a lie of the enemy. I like what Spurgeon says about this. Spurgeon notes that to a graceless neck, the yoke of Christ is intolerable. <clears throat> but to the saved sinner, it is easy and light. We may judge ourselves by this. Do we love that yoke? Or do we wish it to cast it from us? As professing Christians, one of our most subtle acts of rebellion against the king is using religion to thwart God's authority in our lives. And what I mean by that is we often downplay our need for a savior by downplaying our sin. You see, if we don't talk about our sin, we don't take it seriously, we don't take Jesus seriously. One of the best ways to avoid Jesus is to avoid sin. We use our good, mor- our good morals and our good manners as a means to ignore his authority in our lives. Because, you know, if I just do these three things on the checklist, then I'm good. If I just show up here on Sunday morning, go get my lunch, and don't do anything stupid the rest of the week, I'm good. We treat God like a guest coming into our home. We sweep up all the dirty parts. We pretend like we didn't spend the whole day cleaning, preparing for our guests. We open the door. We smile. We use our manners. We show him all the presentable parts of our house. But we only let him go into a certain point. We don't dare show him the messy parts of our lives, the unpresentable parts. We shut those off. We shut the door and we send God outside. And God's authority in our lives as the king doesn't mean that he just has access to the parts we try to hide. That is a part of it. Those unpresentable parts that we desperately cling to, those sinful places that we refuse to give him the authority over. It's handing him the master key to all the doors into the house in the first place. To all the secret places and secret sins. Because he's authority not in just one aspect of your life, but your whole life. That is what it means to serve and submit to a king. But instead, as the people of God, as, as we live think in our context as in Parker, we like a God more as a consultant to our lives. We like God just kind of giving us advice when we need to, when we need to you know, make a big investment, or when you think about a, a big decision with our, our kids. We like to kind of see him as a consultant, you know, give, you know, ask him some feedback, and then make our decisions. We don't like him as a king. It's, it's offensive in our Western lens. We are constantly feeling this tension of love and hate as God's people toward the king. We have a king. If we're being honest, we often hate the king because it involves, it comes with a yoke, bringing authority, which we kind of shudder at that word. But despite all of that, these verses, what's interesting about that is fighting against the king is foolishness, is what this, is what this psalm's going to say. Look at verses 6 through 9. We find that his kingdom is established and therefore unbreakable. 
and without end. He has established his king on Zion. To protest his anointed and establish the king, it's, it's foolish. Look at that imagery in these verses. It says he laughs while sitting on his throne. These threats from these opposing kingdoms and enemies that surround, they don't phase God. He's still sitting on his throne. I think historical context is important to what we're looking at. This psalm would have been sung throughout Israel's history. It's very likely David wrote this, and this is probably the peak of where Israel was at as a world power. But think about the history of Israel for a moment. Like, think about this. Like, they were not a world power for, throughout the centuries, right? It really, after, it really went down south really fast after David. Solomon took over, the nation split, and they had a lot of world powers. The Assyrians, the Babylonians, the people of God, the Israelites, they often looked to their own extinction right in the eyes. They were constantly being surrounded by their enemies. This psalm would have been sung throughout the church history, throughout the thousands of years as a song of hope, as a song about the promise of the Messiah, because these are the Psalms. These are songs meant to evoke emotion for us. They were waiting for the Messiah. They might have thought that looked differently than how we view it, but they were waiting for God's anointing, who we, was going to come as the person of Jesus Christ, who didn't come just to restore Israel back to some world power, but to build a kingdom, a spiritual kingdom that would never be thwarted, a kingdom that is still being built. It's lasted thousands of years. It was born on the blood of martyrs, persecution. It continues to our present day. This psalm should evoke emotion from us this morning that God's promises are irrevocable. That we have a king. That so many have hated and rejected the king and yet his reign is forever. And to fight the king is foolish. The writer of Hebrews quotes verse 7. In Hebrews 1.5, as evidence of the deity of Jesus, that his superiority to all other names of creation, his superiority to even angels, he, ex- he mentions the more excellent name that Jesus received, greater than all other creatures. There's also a lot of imagery in the psalm that contains the fury and the wrath of the king. Like he's not a safe king, he's a powerful king. I think we're uncomfortable with this image of God sometimes. And we prefer kind of the docile, loving side of the king you know, meek and mild Jesus. But there's something that I think should gravitate our hearts about the glory of God this morning. That we serve a powerful king that overcomes and vanquishes his enemies. I think this morning we can either be his enemy or we can take refuge in him, right? Before Jesus came that we were his enemies because we were against him. That's me and your stories this morning. But as the gospels proclaim, his yoke is easy, his burden is light because freedom is found when submitting to the king. It's countercultural, I know. I love the quote in the Chronicles of Narnia where it says, Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. And oh, said Susan, I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. I love that quote. It's about Aslan, which is, you know, a metaphor for who God is, right? There's nothing safe about it. There's nothing safe about this king. He's all-powerful. His terror is coming. But we can either find refuge or rebel against the king. In verse 12, it says this. He says, kiss the son. And I think this primarily has in mind the kiss of submission, where in the context, in, in the context of when the psalm was written, and when a dignitary receives the humble kiss of an inferior, it also hints at the affection. I believe it's the affection that God wants in relationship to Him. It's that submission, but it's not one of just like this terror and fear. It's, it's one of it's one of intimacy, because God wants us to recognize our proper place before Him. 
and also rejoice in him and be affectionate in our relationship. As we think about this psalm this morning, we find that we need, we need the king. We crave it. It's in our language. It's in our language in the 21st century. We think about kings and kingdoms. I believe there's something that evokes in us that memory trace. And I believe this, that Jesus is the king. He's the king. That he's the anointed one. He's going to be, his reign is going to be established. And I believe this, that he's the only king worthy of our submission. We are worshiping creatures. We can worship anything and everything. But they can't deliver. And Psalms is a difficult passage, I think. It's difficult to apply it, I think, tangibly into our lives. And as I was thinking about it this morning, is just how we can apply. I was thinking about a, a conversation that I had with a, a seminary professor um, this semester. I was going through kind of a hard time. There's a lot going on. I got, I got engaged this semester, and, you know, there's a lot of stuff going on with my fiance's family, and we've had to deal a lot with conflict. There was conflict with stuff in my family. There's just a lot going on. And I could tell my professor, he, he could tell there was a lot of going on in my mind. And he asked me, just like one of those simple questions that just kind of gut punches you. And he, he asked me this. He asked me, how, do, how, do you, how are you viewing God in light of your current circumstances? Like, what's your, what's, what's, what comes to mind when you think about God? Because I think we all have these, like, images that come up. When I say, you know, what do you think of when I think of God? You can't help but, you're, you know, you think of an image. You think of something. For me, it was God as a coach. And I was, you know, just grinding and going through, you know, school and semester. And it was, I, I viewed God as a coach. Like, he was just, like, constantly pushing me to get better. Right? Like, it was just, like, getting on top of all things in my life. Just trying to be a better person. And as I was talking to my professor, it was having disastrous consequences on my life. Because it was pushing me to levels that I, I shouldn't go. It was pushing me in my relationship with my fiance Kezia. My overall well-being and my health there was just like this surmounting pressure on me to have all the right answers, to, to get it all together. And I bring this up because I think we all have a functional view of God, if we're being honest. And there's all sorts of different ones, right? We, we, sometimes we think of Father and we think of like, there's some bad things in our past that might cause that to be a, a bad, evil, you know, Father that's out there to get you. You know, for me, it was a coach. Some, some of us actually treat God like a genie. Like, we just have our, like, our three wishes. Like, God, give me this, this, and that. Now I'm good, right? We, we think of it as like a vending machine where, I, you know, I take my quarter, I put it in for church on Sunday morning, and then God gives me, you know, God bless my life for the rest of the week. Or sometimes he's just the joy killer. Like, God is just there to, like, really just bring down the party. Sometimes he's our bailout person. He's just the person you need when all things break. And I think what this psalm is really calling us to do it's calling our question of how do you view God? What is your image that comes to mind? I think it's calling us to a more robust, more holistic picture of who God is because he is a king. He is the true king. The king of kings, the Lord of lords. As Colossians says, he is the image of the invisible God, the second person of the Trinity. And what we think of God is one of the most important questions in our lives. Out of that question is going to flow action. Because he's the king. And I believe that he is good and he's gracious. And I actually believe this, is submission to this king actually leads to life and satisfaction for your soul. Because as Matthew 11 says, his yoke is easy, his burden is light. And I hope just from glimpsing this, this song that was sung throughout the church history, that was sung throughout Israel's captivity, that we should marvel greater. We should marvel at the greatness and glory of our king. That he's anything but safe, but he is good. 
and that our hearts would be stirred, that we would be moved to worship because he's great. Because we are worshiping creatures. And we're often looking to lesser things, to lesser gods, to lesser kings for our identity, for our fulfillment, for what we think is the good life. And they all leave us empty and more bitter. But Jesus, submitting to him as the king is where true life is found. Because he is good. He's a good king. Let me leave you with this this morning from Tim Keller. I love this quote. He says this, the secret to freedom from enslaving patterns of sin is worship. You need worship. You need great worship. You need weeping worship. You need glorious worship. You need to sense God's greatness and to be moved by it. Moved to tears and moved to laughter. Moved by who God is and what he has done for you. So pray with me this morning. Jesus, we thank you that you are the king. We thank you that you are a gracious, loving king. You are powerful. And God, in our hearts, there's always this tension, there's always this war that fights against your rulership, your authority in our lives. Because God, we desperately cling to our self, our autonomous self. We get so wrapped up in sometimes this culture trying to be like a God, trying to garner worship for ourselves when that worship was meant to be for you. It's where we find meaning, it's where we find joy, it's where we find satisfaction. So help us as your people, Lord, we marvel even further from this psalm, your greatness, your glorious nature of who you are and what you've done. That you are the Messiah, you are the anointed one that has come. And that your promises are irrevocable, your kingdom is unshakable. We marvel, Lord, and we worship. We worship who you are and what you've done. It's in your name we pray.